Well, it's been interesting watching the different reactions of people to the government COVID restrictions. Uh, most of us are fine. Uh, we'll do what we're told. We'll, we'll stay home, we'll wear a mask, we won't travel. Uh, we're willing to recognise the authority of the government over us. We're, we're willing to give up some of our individual freedom for the sake of the whole society. But other people demand that they've got the right to do whatever they want. Uh, there was Karen at Bunnings uh, ranting at staff, refusing to wear a mask. Uh, she videoed herself and then everyone made fun of her. her. Her video went viral. And just in the last week, there was a woman called Cynthia Page who sued the New York State for its COVID 14 day quarantine period. Uh, she took it to the Supreme Court. She said it infringed her fundamental right to travel and uh, they threw it out, thankfully. And funnily enough, it's this same sort of reaction that many people out there have to the idea that God will judge them. They feel that they have the right to make their own choices, decide their own fate, and they refuse to allow the idea that God might intrude or question that, that independence. They refuse to recognise his right to, to, to judge them. I think what it comes down to is, is, is the... The, this widespread cultural individualism that we find in our society today. Uh, people quite like the idea that God will forgive people, but they, they, they just don't want to accept this idea about judgment. There's this unspoken rule in our culture that each of us basically has the right to do whatever we want. Uh, and the flip side of that is that the greatest evil you can do to someone is to restrict their freedom or to tell them that they're wrong. And yet, interestingly enough, there are plenty of other cultures around the world where this idea of God graciously forgiving everyone would be hard to accept. They're quite happy with the idea that God will judge people. They think, they think that's quite fair and that God will hold people accountable for their actions. Uh, but they find this idea of, of um, uh, people being forgiven for something that they've done wrong as unjust and hard to accept. But in our society, it's that God is judging people that most people have greatest problems with. So what I want to do today is defend this idea of God's judgment. Uh, firstly, just to do a quick run through the Bible, show that it's a central teaching of the Bible. Uh, second thing, I'm going to give you three reasons to rejoice in God's judgment. Uh, and thirdly, three applications of God's judgment. Uh, so first point, God, uh, the Bible teaches it. From start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, we see the truth that God holds us accountable. And in the end, he'll judge us. Uh, Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve. He tells them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And then he delivers judgment on them when they disobey him. Uh, the reality is he's the one who's created us. He has the right to do whatever he decides with his creatures. He sees everything. Uh, nothing is hidden from his sight. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12:14 says, "For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil." Uh, no one can escape. Even the rich and the powerful and the well-connected, God's more powerful and, and able to control uh, even them as well. Uh, Psalm 11:5 and 6 says, the Lord is at your right hand. He'll crush kings 
on the day of his wrath. He'll judge the nations, heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers of the whole earth. It sounds like a pretty scary day, doesn't it? But at the same time, the message of the Bible is that God is infinitely wise and righteous. And so if we want to allow anyone to judge us, we can be confident that God is someone who will make a right judgment about people. Genesis 18, 25, Abraham is pleading with God to show mercy to the city of Sodom. And the way he does it is he appeals to God's just character. God won't punish righteous people. And then he concludes his argument in his prayer and he says, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? There's one thing you can be sure of in the midst of uncertainty, that God is the one who will act wisely and justly. He will do what's right. We may act unjustly, but God never will. If we jump all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 20, at the end of the world, God will be seated on a great white throne and everyone uh, will stand before him, uh, the whole uh, living and dead, uh, and he'll judge them according to what they've done. Uh, If we jump back to Romans 2 that Malcolm just read for us, it it talks about that day as well. Uh, In fact, the argument begins in in Romans chapter 1, from verse 18, if you've got your Bible open, just have a look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, we read about how God's wrath is being revealed, present tense, against people's godlessness and wickedness. Uh, They choose to ignore God and and do what they want instead. And God's wrath hands them over to the consequences of their bad choices. And our world bears the scars of those bad choices. And that's an expression of God's wrath, God's judgment at the moment. And then chapter 1 finishes with this damning description of humanity. Chapter 1 finishes from uh, verse 28. Furthermore, since they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, that, that's painful to hear. I hope you heard that and you thought, oh, I don't, I don't want to hear anymore. I didn't want to read it. I wanted to just skip to the end and just keep going. But that's what God feels and sees when he looks at his world. You may not be all of those things, but you are many of them. We all are. I am many of those things, at least some of the time. That's the situation in our world. God looks at it. And it's no wonder that he, with perfect justice, will judge us. In chapter 2, Paul turns his attention from the world, at general, uh, world, in, 
well in, uh, in general, to the church that he's writing to, the church in Rome. And in particular, what God's coming judgment means for how the Christians in that church relate to one another. And specifically, he's got in mind how the Jewish Christians get along with the Gentile Christians. And his first point is we shouldn't judge one another because we all deserve judgment. Uh, look there from verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. It's very dangerous to judge other people by a standard that you can't live up to. Why? Well, because God, God's judgment is very close. Verse 3, he says, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? You see, at the moment, God is patient we all deserve God's judgment right now. All of us. And yet in his patience, he's delaying, he's withholding his judgment, waiting for people to recognise their error, to, to turn away from it and to turn to him. And yet whenever people take advantage of that patience and whenever they dismiss and reject and judge others, they're actually abusing God's kindness and their hypocrisy and their blindness invites God's judgment on them. The reality, says Paul, is that judgment is coming. Verse 5, he continues, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. I wonder if people out there in the world, as they think about the individual freedom to express themselves, I wonder whether they think about that sort of lifestyle as storing up wrath. They think they're building assets. They think they're generating experiences. They think they're uh, building their qualifications. And yet God says they're storing up wrath. Then in verse 6, we see what that day will be like. God will give to each person according to what he's done. Judgment will be individual It'll be complete. God will be impartial and thorough. There'll be no special exemptions, no loopholes. There'll be no white privilege, no ethnic advantage, Jew and Gentile alike. And it'll be consistent according to what each has done. No one will bear the punishment for another's sin. No one will have their behaviour overlooked. Verse 9 goes on, there'll be one standard, there'll be no favouritism. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. No exception, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. God doesn't show favouritism. You might notice Paul is very, uh, he keeps going back to this Jew and Gentile thing. Why does he do it? Well, from verse 12, I think we can get behind what's going on in the Roman church. Uh, the Jewish Christians thought they had an advantage over the Gentile Christians. You see, they had the, they had the law, they had the Old Testament. 
And they thought that gave them a head start when it came to God's judgment. But Paul says in verse 12 that they're mistaken. He says, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. Gentiles will perish if they sin. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That's the Jews. They'll be found guilty. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Paul's point is directed to the Jews. Just having the law is not enough. It's not even enough to hear it. You've got to obey it. And that's the standard that's going to count on Judgment Day. It's not enough to hear it. It's not enough uh, to just have it. It doesn't matter where you were born, what country you were born in. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter how often you've heard about Jesus or how educated you are, the colour of your skin. It doesn't matter how many generations of Christians precede you in your family. None of that matters when it comes to Judgment Day. What counts will be what you do with what he tells you. The only thing that will count is what you do with what he tells you. So what's he told you? Well, the message of the Bible is that we've all sinned. We all deserve judgment, but he's showing us kindness, tolerance and patience. He's leading us towards repentance. He calls us to turn from our sin, to trust his son, to live for him. And your fate on Judgment Day depends on what you do with that message. So make sure you hear and obey. Well, that's a good introduction to our next section, which is three reasons to rejoice in God's judgment. Three reasons to rejoice in God's judgment. And the first reason is one we've just talked about. Uh, We can rejoice in God's judgment because he offers us an escape. He offers us an escape from it. It is not inevitable. Judgment is not inevitable. It is the opposite of inevitable. I don't know whatever the... What's the opposite of inevitable? Is it evitable? Surely it's evitable. We read in in verse 4 of Romans 2, he will judge everyone and, and yet he's showing patience and kindness, leading people to repentance. There's a way out. Verse 7, Romans 2, for those who repent, who who turn from self-seeking and instead seek glory, honour and immortality, in other words, seek the things of God, he promises eternal life, salvation. Uh, You make it through judgement. There's an escape through the perfect work of Jesus. Yes, God will judge, he'll judge all, but he also offers an escape. The second reason we can rejoice in God's, um, uh, in God's judgment is that it's good news for those who suffer. It's good news for those who suffer. Uh, the book of 2 Thessalonians is written to a persecuted church. Uh, and Paul writes in verse 4, he says, Among God's churches, is, uh, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. So they're enduring persecutions. But look at the promise he gives them in verse 6. God is just. He'll pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He'll give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He'll punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel. There'll be relief for those who are persecuted. There'll be justice for those who are doing the persecuting. That's good news. God's judgment is good news. But it's not just good news for the persecuted. There's going to be relief from all suffering on Judgment Day. At the moment, everything in this world has been broken by sin. And on Judgment Day, there'll be relief from sickness and death and loneliness and fear and brokenness. Revelation 21, following on from that passage about the great white throne of judgment, we read about how God will join himself to his people. And in verse 4, there's this promise. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. It's a reason to celebrate. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Judgment will bring an end to everything that causes suffering and death and justice against the culprits. And so there's comfort and hope for those who suffer in judgment. That's the second reason. Uh, the third reason we can rejoice in suffering is because uh, we can rejoice in judgment is because it's been delayed. You may think that's a little contradictory to reason number two, but, but I think we can rejoice in both those things. We can rejoice that judgment's been delayed. At the moment, according to Romans 1, God's wrath is being revealed. He's handing people over to the consequences of their sinful choices. He's giving them a taste of where those choices will end up if they continue in them. He doesn't bring judgment, though. There's a chance to repent. He's warning by handing people over. And so at the moment, there's this suffering that we live with because of sin. But at the same time, in verse 4, he's kind and tolerant and patient. Remember, we saw that in Romans 2, verse 4. He's leading people to repentance. Another passage that talks about this is 2 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter's answering critics who scoff that God's judgment isn't coming. And uh, he says, God will keep his word. Uh, The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, verse 7, being kept for the day of judgment. Uh, Judgment's definitely coming. And then he says, just in case you thought God was being slow, it's not it at all. God's not slow in keeping his promise to bring judgment. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The delay in God's judgment, it's not because he's lazy. It's not because God's disorganised. It's not because he's disinterested and doesn't care. It's because he's patient. It's because he wants everyone to repent. God wants no one in hell. And so he's holding back on sending the day of judgment. He's giving time and opportunities for your friends and families and workmates and neighbours to hear about Jesus. He's waiting for you to tell them so that they can trust and turn and repent. So rejoice that God's judgment is delayed. 
That's the third reason to rejoice. Which leads us on to some practical applications. How should we live today in the light of God's judgment? Uh, Well, the first, the most obvious application, if God's coming to judge, is repent. Uh, We saw it in Romans 2, verse 4. We're not going to escape judgment. At the moment, God's being tolerant and patient. His kindness is leading you to repentance. We saw it in those verses of 2, Peter uh, chapter 3. God's patient. God's wrath is relentless, but it's a slow burn. He wants no one to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. If you haven't done that, today's a great day. Don't keep presuming on God's patience because one day it'll run out. Many of us have done that already. God's patience means he's waiting for you to tell people about his coming judgment. You may be the only Christian some of your non-Christian friends know. The second application uh, is don't judge others. That's on on God's job description. It's not on yours. Uh, We saw that in Romans 2, uh, verse 1. We've got no excuse to judge others as guilty before God because we're just as guilty. We're just not qualified to judge. And we don't have to judge either. We can leave the judging up to God. He's going to do a far better job of it than we will. If we flip over a few chapters from Romans chapter 2, we get to Romans 12, where Paul returns to this same theme of judging others. And he says, Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you see what Paul's saying? The reality that God will judge people empowers you when you've been the victim of injustice. You can actually choose to live at peace. You can choose to not respond to hate with hate. You can leave space for God to deliver the wrath. Your choice to love and to move on is leaving space for God to judge. You can leave it up to him because he's going to do a better job of it anyway. The third application of God's judgment is that it motivates us to live godly lives. Flip back over to 2 Peter 3 if you've been following along. Uh, 2 Peter 3, we looked at uh, earlier, the first part of that chapter, at how God is patient with people, he's not bringing judgement hastily. And then he describes in verse 10 how the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly like a thief and everything will be destroyed. And then we see the application of that reality, what that means. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Now we may expect... Peter's answer to be, well, live any way you like. Everything's going to be destroyed. There'll be no consequences. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But no, Peter doesn't say that. He says the opposite. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. 
as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. What's his argument? Well, he's saying judgment's coming and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is the standard behaviour. So work hard to be holy and godly now so that you'll fit in then. You'll be at home. You'll be fit for purpose for eternity. Work on being holy and godly now so you'll be ready for eternity. Notice how the focus isn't so much on being good so you'll make it through judgment. I wonder if Peter is saying, because you will make it through judgment. If you belong to Jesus, then your judgment verdict has already been decided. You've been found innocent. You're innocent. And so Peter's focus moves to what comes after that. Our motivation for godly living is because we're looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness, to what comes after judgment. And as we do that, we make every effort so that we might be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, there's many difficult things. We've uh, so many passages we could have looked at. Uh, and... Mm. Some things we just are not sure about. But we thank you that you uh, know exactly what's going on. Uh, We can trust you. Uh, Please help us to hand over our doubts and our concerns and our questions to you. uh, And we leave them with you. We hand over our our thoughts of revenge and getting even. Uh, We leave them with you. We pray that you might equip us and empower us to live holy, godly lives as we look forward uh, to the new home of righteousness. Amen.